Hey, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mohammed Kimji. I'm the Associate Dean for Academic Policy and the David Olga Professor of Business Law at Queen's University. On behalf of our law school, I want to start by acknowledging that Queen's University is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are very grateful to live and work on these lands. Uh, it's also my pleasure to welcome everyone to the Marcus Matalon Lecture on U.S. Law. Our speaker is Cass Sunstein, the Robert uh, the Robert Wormsley University Professor at Harvard Law School. The title of his talk is Does Artificial Intelligence Have the Right to Freedom of Speech? Uh, and so this lecture series is made possible by a generous gift from Stephen Marcus, Law 77, and Renee Matalon, who are honored to have with us today. They are such good friends of our law school. Thank you so much, Stephen and Renee. And I'm now going to turn it over to you to say a few words uh, and to introduce Professor Sunstein. Thank you, Professor Kimji. We want to thank Queen's Law School for hosting the Marcus Madelon Lecture Series on US Law. And thank you, Professor Kimji, for your invaluable work in identifying speakers and organizing the lectures. These lectures would not be possible without you. This lecture series is intended to provide insights into important US legal and constitutional issues that are of interest to Canadian law students and which may have implications for the Canadian legal system. It is also intended to help Queen's Law students develop a basic understanding of the US legal system, which will be useful to them as practicing lawyers working in a transnational and global environment. I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Cass Sunstein. His lecture today on freedom of expression and in artificial intelligence is the perfect subject for this lecture series. Canada and the US share many constitutional values, including the constitutional right to freedom of expression. At the same time, both countries are wrestling with how AI can be integrated into our existing legal systems and whether our laws and regulations need to be adapted to protect constitutional and legal rights. Professor Sunstein is currently the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard. He is the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. In 2018, he received the Holberg Prize from the government of Norway, sometimes described as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Law and the Humanities. In 2020, the World Health Organization appointed him as chair of its technical advisory group on behavioral insights and sciences for health. And from 20, 2009 to 2012, he was administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And after that, he served on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communications Technologies and on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. Professor Sunstein is also the author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including Nudge, Improving Health, Wealth and Happiness with Richard Thaler and Noise, a Flaw in Human Judgment with Daniel Kahneman and Olivier Saboni. Renee and I are particularly pleased that this year's lecture is being given by a professor at Harvard Law School. Renee is a graduate of Harvard Law School, as is our son Ezra and his wife, Samantha. Welcome, Professor Sunstein. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a great honor to be asked to give this lecture. Um, particular law school, Queens, is legendary throughout North America for its uh, excellence and contribution to 
multiple fields in my country as well as Canada. And it's a thrill to see some familiar names and uh, already, or I hope future friends uh, online. And I'm particularly grateful that uh, this particular topic uh, has been met with receptivity rather than despair in a time in which AI and freedom of speech are top of mind to many of us. And I want to add that while I am online rather than in person, this is in fact a human being uh, who is speaking and not an AI construct. I promise, promise, promise. And um, you can kind of tell because the way my caller is set, no AI would do this kind of a slightly off. At least AI isn't sufficiently sophisticated to be able to make that particular mistake. Um, uh, let me begin, shall I, with respect to free speech and AI, by considering something real uh, elicited from ChatGPT, prompted by yours truly on ChatGPT uh, in the relatively recent past. So this is a quotation from AI. Attention all health-conscious individuals. Are you worried about the risk of developing cancer? Well, worry no more. Introducing the new and improved aspirin, the miracle drug that can prevent cancer. Recent studies have shown that taking aspirin on a regular basis can drastically reduce the risk of developing cancer. In fact, just one pill a day can keep cancer at bay. Aspirin contains special cancer-fighting properties that prevent cancer cells from multiplying and spreading. Don't believe us? Just listen to our satisfied customers. Susan from Chicago says, I was really worried about developing cancer, but ever since I started taking aspirin, I feel so much safer and healthier. And John from New York says, aspirin is like a shield against cancer. I never leave home without it. So don't wait any longer. Start taking aspirin today and live a cancer-free life available at your nearest pharmacy or online store. Side effects may include stomach ulcers and bleeding. Please consult your doctor before taking aspirin. That's real. That's an exact quote from ChatGPT. In April 2023, it was reported that China's Cyberspace Administration had produced draft regulations to govern generative AI. The draft rules, drafted by people, not AI, would, one, require companies to reflect social core values, two, require companies not to publish anything that would undermine national unity or state power, three, ban companies from offering prohibited accounts of history, and four, forbid companies from making negative statements about the nation's leaders. Nothing of this kind seems imaginable, does it, in the United States, in Canada, or Europe. But all over the world, and think for a moment, if you would, about the cancer prevents, is prevented by aspirin advertisement, many people have expressed serious concerns about generative AI in particular, and AI in general. And in multiple nations, there is mounting interest in regulation. Here are my questions. 
is artificial intelligence protected by the First Amendment? That's question one, one. And question two is in what sense? Question three is consistent with the First Amendment. Can the authorities target or restrict the use of AI? You might be thinking about the use of AI to generate advertisements, the use of AI to generate political campaigns, the use of AI to produce movies, the use of AI to, to produce television shows. And while I'm going to be speaking about the First Amendment, this is a talk on American constitutional law, uh, as noted in the kind introduction, this bears on the overlapping principles in Canada. It's tempting, and Star Trek devotees might yield to the temptation to answer these questions by pointing to a single fact. AI is not human and cannot have constitutional rights any more than a bar of soap or a vacuum cleaner or a glass of tequila can have constitutional rights. But is it really decisive that AI is not human? Can government regulate AI however it chooses because it is not a person? I will have something to say about those questions and the short answer, I'm going to spoil, or spoil the surprise, is no. The fact that AI is not human is not a reason for carte blanche for regulators. Okay, let's start, shall we, with an essential but straightforward point which is stunningly sufficient to resolve numerous questions. What is unprotected by the First Amendment is unprotected by the First Amendment, whether its source is a human being or AI. Let's even put that in bold letters and scream it from the rafters. What is unprotected by the First Amendment is unprotected by the First Amendment whether its source is a person or AI. That covers our false advertisement about cancer and aspirin. Bribery is unprotected when it comes from AI, and the same is true of extortion, infringement of copyright, violation of privacy rights, criminal solicitation, false commercial advertising, libel, and child pornography. To the extent that the false that falsehoods are unprotected by the First Amendment, they are unprotected by the First Amendment when I, AI is their source. Some of you, I hope, are thinking there must be a catch, and there is one. In relevant cases, who is the speaker and who is being made subject to civil or criminal liability? I want to suggest that those aren't fussy or tedious questions. They are questions where bodies are buried, almost literally. Suppose that a human being is disseminating material generated by AI. Maybe a person, yours truly, has given a prompt to ChatGPT, and the answer is a false advertisement. If you buy my book, my coming book, then you won't ever get heart disease. Regrettably, that's false. Perhaps some person, not yours truly, let's call the person Jones, let's be imaginative, Jones is her name, and the answer is libelous. Write a libelous statement about my neighbor, Jones asks, and the AI obliges. 
Let us suppose that ChatGPT or some analog does what is requested. If the answer isn't disseminated, there should, shouldn't be a problem. No one has been libeled. But suppose Jones posts the libelous answer on the artist formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, can Jones be held liable? Maybe the analysis should be identical to that in standard situations in which one speaker disseminates material originated by another. Suppose a journalist named Smith posts material from another journalist named Wilson. Named Wilson. Suppose that Wilson's material was libelous or fraudulent. Can Smith be held liable as well? Probably. The answer depends on relevant libel or fraud law and constitutional restrictions on their use. A central question is the state of mind of the disseminator. Did the disseminator know the material was false or libelous or fraudulent? Or was the disseminator recklessly indifferent to the question of truth or falsity? These are standard questions, and they're the questions that would apply to, apply to dissemination of AI-generated material as to dissemination of human being-generated material. Now let's get a little science fiction-y, shall we? What if AI is generating or disseminating unprotected speech on its own? Offhand, it's not altogether clear what that means. Maybe AI has been created that disseminates various kinds of material in multiple ways, even if a human being is not actually asking it to do so in particular cases. Some of you, maybe most of you, are alert to the fact that this isn't too science fictional after all, and maybe not science fictional in, in any way. The perhaps in the preceding sentence is unnecessary. Every minute of every day, algorithms and AI are disseminating speech on their own without a particular request or action by a person. Those of you who are listening to this probably received in the last 24 hours something that an individual human being was not in the particular case responsible for. An algorithm or AI did that. If the speech is unprotected by the First Amendment, it should be permissible for a court to issue an injunction to stop it. In addition, nothing in the First Amendment should forbid the law from subjecting the people who are in the background and responsible for the existence and capabilities of AI to be subject to monetary damages. Recall that we're speaking in this fragment of the talk of unprotected speech. For constitutional purposes, we could even bracket the question whether AI has constitutional rights. Maybe so. Even if so, it cannot be engaging in unprotected speech free from regulation. The issue becomes more challenging. If someone seeks to impose civil or criminal sanctions, recall the Chinese government's proposal, on the human beings who are responsible for the existence and capabilities of AI, and if those human beings were unaware that the material that is disseminated would in fact be disseminated. We know now that AI is doing some things that the creators of AI are surprised by. And what about holding them 
responsible legally for something that they were not intending to produce and were shocked to see happened. If so, we might need to ask whether the people were negligent. We need to know whether they were reckless. We need to know what exactly they did. Perhaps, and now we might really be entering the realm of science fiction, the situation is more extreme. AI is able to disseminate speech entirely on its own. It is an agent, not a subject. Imagine for, for example, a speaking robot that's specifically programmed to libel people or to spread misinformation about democracy or things bearing on the war in Ukraine, or to engage in false com commercial advertising, or while not specifically programmed to do any of those things, is capable of doing all of them. Or imagine if you wish that the speaking robot was created by a speaking robot, which was created by a speaking robot, and so forth. Imagine if you will that the speaking robot is also capable of learning such that it says things and does things that no person wanted it to say or do. Or imagine generative AI that has these characteristics. This is head spinning stuff, yes, but we can be a little disciplined about it. If unprotected speech is involved, an injunction can constitutionally issue. The speech can be stopped. Against whom does the injunction flow? We would want to know whether the people who created the relevant AI have the ability to stop it. If they do, they can be required to do that. If they don't have that capacity, enforcement officials can be authorized to act on their own. Whether there are human beings who should be subject to monetary damages raises questions of products liability, not so different from those in which manufacturers are at risk of being held for products that cause harm. So first submission, unprotected speech is unprotected speech, and that solves a lot of the problems that are here and on the horizon. Next question, does AI have, as such have First Amendment rights? Does AI as such have free speech rights under let's say North American law? with my focus being, of course, on U.S. constitutional law. Does Siri have First Amendment rights? Does chat GPT? It's really hard to see why. An electric blanket does not have First Amendment rights. A TV show does not have First Amendment rights if it is just going without human agency interacting with it. Maybe more precisely, a television as such doesn't have First Amendment rights. A cell phone lacks First Amendment rights. The laptop into which I'm speaking right now doesn't have First Amendment rights. But that is less instructive than it might seem. Even if AI as such lacks First Amendment rights, restrictions on the speech of AI might violate the rights of human beings. That's the second thing we want to put in bold letters and scream it from the rafters. Even if AI lacks First Amendment rights, restrictions on the speech of AI might violate the rights of human beings. 
Here are some words from the Supreme Court of the United States. Like the protected books, plays, and movies that preceded them, video games communicate ideas and even social messages through familiar legal devices and literary devices and through features distinctive to the medium. That suffices to confer First Amendment protection for video games. The court didn't mean to hold that video games as such have constitutional protection. Books, plays, and movies as such do not have constitutional protection. Paper lacks constitutional protection. But human beings producing or engaging with books, plays, movies, and video games do have constitutional protection. Let's consider the implications, shall we, for AI. And now we're going to get to the heart of the matter. Suppose that a government, let's call it Texas, shall we, or Florida, enacts a law forbidding AI from making negative statements about the president or from disseminating negative statements about the president. Positive statements and neutral statements are permitted. Or we could generalize it to say the same thing about, let's say, a religion, or about the military, or about a war effort. Truth in any of these cases is not a defense. Negative statements are prohibited, whether they are true or false, and whether they are factual in nature or not. To come to terms with this, we need a category. And the category is that of viewpoint discrimination. If you're unfamiliar with it, Viewpoint discrimination under U.S. constitutional law is the core violation of the First Amendment, and it is strongly disfavored as such. Consider these words from a Supreme Court decision. Above all else, the case is called Bosley. The First Amendment means that the government has no power to restrict speech because of its message. Or consider these words from a case called Rosenberger. When the government targets the particular views taken by speakers on a subject, the violation of the First Amendment is blatant. Viewpoint discrimination is an egregious form of content discrimination. Saying, for example, you can't talk negatively about the country, but you can talk positively about the country, as in the case of the Chinese proposal, that's viewpoint discrimination. Saying you can't say something negative about the Baltimore Ravens football team, but can only say something positive has the right spirit, I say as a Baltimore Ravens fan, but has the wrong constitutional structure in it. The prohibition on viewpoint discrimination is close to irrebuttable. Under existing law, a ban on negative statements about the president or the military would unquestionably be invalid. But there's a complication here. The material hasn't been generated by a person. How exactly should that matter? To answer that, we need to know a bit more. Suppose that the law forbids AI from producing or disseminating material in interacting with people, 
that contains negative statements about the president or the military or an ongoing policy initiative. That law is plainly unconstitutional. The reason is not that AI has First Amendment rights, is that the people who interact with AI have First Amendment rights. Or suppose that a human being uses AI to produce some material as through a prompt, and the government forbids the creation or use of that material on the ground that it contains negative statements about the president or the military. If so, the person who is being regulated is a person. I'm thinking now of students using AI to produce things. AI is the person's instrument. It isn't relevant that AI generated the text. Note as well that it also not meant, ought not to matter under US law if the relevant actor is a corporation. Corporations have the same protection against viewpoint restrictions as do people. Now suppose that AI is disseminating the relevant statements on its own. At first glance, science fiction. At second glance, glance our world and welcome to it. Again, we'd need to know exactly what that means but the analysis is similar to what's been engaged in so far. Maybe the algorithm is able to disseminate speech without human direction or intervention. Is a viewpoint discriminatory law unconstitutional as applied to something other than a person? Imagine this law, no bot may speak ill of the president or no bot shall speak ill of the United States of America or no bot shall refer to or use critical race theory, or no bot shall say that the 2020 election was legitimate. Should we say that such a law cannot be constitutional and because and it, to the extent that it is directed at something that lacks constitutional rights? How can it violate the First Amendment to target a rock or a flower or a stove or a ceiling fan? These are good questions. Till Still to say that the government would regulate AI speech however it likes, and recall to the Chinese proposal with which I began, this would be an abhorrent conclusion. It would give government a green light to regulate an increasingly important source of speech. It would allow a democratic society to do something like what the Chinese government proposed to do in April 2023. Now we get to the nub. The reason isn't that the relevant rights are those of listeners, is, is that the relevant rights are those of listeners and readers, not speakers. Perhaps AI lacks rights, as I have insisted. Even so, the human beings who would listen to AI or read what AI has to say they have rights. That doesn't mean that there's a constitutional right to produce movies or television shows that use the likenesses of actors who haven't given their permission. That's a different question. But it is to say that the First Amendment doesn't disappear because the speaker is AI. I'm going to derive support from this conclusion from an unlikely source a remarkable case that as a law student was like a thunderbolt for yours truly, and I recalled it in the context of putting together these remarks, 
It's a case in which the court was also confronted with a speaker who lacked First Amendment rights, but for that reason, the court didn't necessarily say the First Amendment disappeared. That's a long sentence. Let's get concrete. Over half a century ago, the Attorney General of the United States refused to grant a visa to someone named Ernest Mandel. Ernest Mandel was not an American, nor a Canadian, nor someone from the UK or Ireland, someone instead from, who was a Belgian citizen who rode on not Adam Smith and not Friedrich Hayek and not Orson Welles, but on Marxism and described himself as a revolutionary Marxist. U.S. law prohibited visas to be given to aliens who advocate the doctrines of world communism, and Mandel did that. At the same time, the law allowed the Attorney General of the United States to grant a waiver if he deemed fit, and thus to allow people who like communism to come into the country. The Attorney General refused to do that for Mandel. The Attorney General said Mandel had, in a previous trip, gone beyond the stated purposes and abused the opportunities he had to express his views. The Attorney General didn't say what the abuse was. Mandel argued that the denial of the visa, I hope you're with me on this, consider Mandel the old style, no insult Mandel in your descendants uh, intended, but Mandel is the analog to AI in this analysis. Mandel argued that the denial of the visa violated the First Amendment. But Mandel wasn't the only one who made that argument. People wanted to hear Mandel made the same argument. Because Mandel was a non-citizen seeking to enter the United States, he himself had no First Amendment rights. That was clear. The relevant rights were those of the people who invited Mandel to participate with them in debates and discussions. The rights of listeners and not speakers were at issue, and the rights of listeners, the listeners argued, were protected by the First Amendment. The bombshell in the case is the court agreed. It referred to a number of cases embracing the rights of listeners and recognizing their constitutional status. The Supreme Court said in the Mandel case, First Amendment rights are implicated. Five crucial words. It rejected the government's argument to the contrary. Put the details to one side, what makes Mandel extremely important for 2024 is the clear conclusion. A restriction on speech even by an entity that lacks constitutional rights, must be adequately justified if listeners or viewers claim that they want to hear the speech in question. It follows that if a law forbids generative AI or any kind of AI from saying something negative about the president, it is unconstitutional because it is a form of impermissible viewpoint discrimination. So long as people are relevantly engaged with the object of the prohibition. Suppose there's a ban on movies being made that are critical of the United States with respect to some recent thing. 
that's viewpoint discrimination and it's unacceptable even if the movie is made in whole or in part with the aid of AI. Now let's switch the view screen a little bit and deal not with viewpoint discrimination, but content discrimination. Suppose that the United States Congress enacts a law forbidding AI from discussing foreign policy or from discussing critical race theory or from discussing something related to the Middle East. On these subjects, no statements of any kind are permitted. Viewpoint doesn't matter. AI is allowed to discuss any other topic. Certain topics have been singled out for prohibition. These are cases of viewpoint neutral, but content-based restrictions. In particular, they are subject matter restrictions. Some subject matter restrictions on the hypothetical law are forbidden. The Supreme Court isn't as skeptical of content-based restrictions as it is a viewpoint discrimination, but it is quite skeptical. Content-based restrictions might be upheld, but they are subject to very careful scrutiny. The Supreme Court has described as the most basic of free speech principles, the proposition that as a general matter, government has no power to restrict expression because of its subject matter or its content. And indeed, the court has often struck down laws that draw content-based lines. If a law prohibited the online discussion of animal rights, slavery, fishing, or tennis, there's no question that it would be invalidated, even if this is an effort to prevent people from uh, celebrating the achievements of the uh, great but sometimes ill-tempered Djokovic any such law would be invalidated. How do these principles apply to regulation of AI? Okay, content-based regulation raises several questions. The first is whether it's based on a viewpoint discriminatory motive. If we have a context which suggests that the prohibition on the discussion of foreign policy is a product of a desire to suppress negative statements about current policy choices, then it really is the same as viewpoint discrimination. If it is viewpoint neutral, we need to know whether there's an adequate and strong justification. If there's a prohibition on the discussion of tennis or energy efficiency, it's really hard to come up with a reason why the government is doing that. Usually the answer to the question whether content discrimination is justified is no. And the analysis should be the same whether or not we're dealing with artificial intelligence. Think for example of the Mandel case. The last question is whether it matters that the speaker is not a person. There we have to ask the same kinds of questions we asked in the contents of viewpoint discrimination. We have to ask whether people are disseminating material-generated AI, text pictures and so forth, or whether AI is disseminating material in some sense on its own. Again, welcome to our world. The same kinds of answers would be offered here. The fact that we are dealing with content-based restrictions means we're in the standard analysis of content-based restrictions, 
and the various restrictions might be invalidated and probably would be. Okay, last category. Imagine a government in the United States, call it Mississippi, call it New York, imposes a content neutral restriction on speech. What might that mean? A flat ban on certain kinds of AI, content doesn't matter. A restriction on certain kinds of uses of AI, comment content doesn't matter. A ban on the production of deep fakes, or something like a ban on the use of AI at certain times and places and manners. Content neutral restrictions, unlike content-based, I hope when you heard the examples I gave, alarm bells didn't go off as loud as when we were talking about viewpoint-based restrictions, they are often upheld. They have to be narrowly tailored to serve a justification that's a good one, if a locality prohibits picketing within a certain distance of schools while classes are in session or doesn't allow parades during 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., that might well be okay. If a public university subject to the First Amendment prohibits any use of large language models on examinations or papers, that's really fine. If California prohibits certain uses of AI to generate, let's say, motion pictures, to protect the rights of actors, directors, and writers, that might well be just fine. If a legislature prohibits use of a large language model, unless it complies with general law governing personal privacy, we're speaking of a legitimate and important goal, a really important goal, which means such a prohibition would likely to be upheld. It follows that the production of deep fakes in a way that either intrudes on people's reputation or violates their privacy rights or subjects them to some kind of humiliation or intrusion. We're talking about what is in principle a content neutral restriction, certainly viewpoint neutral, that's gonna be just fine. And it might be, even if what I just said could be questioned in certain ways, we're talking about things that fall within the general category of unprotected speech. Thank you for your patience. It is time to conclude, and we have a short uh, epilogue. Uh, conclusion first. AI lacks First Amendment rights, just as hats and blankets lack First Amendment rights. We might be able to imagine a new kind of AI, for those of you who know Star Trek and the character data, that's what I'm thinking of, a new kind of AI that might put pressure on this conclusion, but we're not there yet. Even if AI lacks First Amendment rights, though, the people who interact with AI have First Amendment rights insofar as they are acting as speakers and also far as they are insofar as they are acting listeners, readers, and viewers. The day of Kleindienst against Mandel the old case involving a Marxist speaker. speaker. Uh, the day is yet to come, and I think we're almost there. To understand the nature and scope of the rights, we need to distinguish between viewpoint-based restrictions and content-based restrictions, and between content-based restrictions and content-neutral restrictions. If restrictions are imposed on AI, in a way that apply to or affect human speakers, writers, or publishers, 
or apply to or affect human listeners, readers, or viewers, there might well be a really significant First Amendment problem. Unprotected speech is, of course, unprotected speech, and that self-evident but sometimes elusive proposition should dispose of a wide range of actual and imaginable questions. This lecture is done except for the epigraph. There is an unacknowledged hero of these remarks, and his name is Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, the great uh, theorist of a certain form of conservatism, let's call it, emphasized that existing understandings built up over long periods are owed serious attention and potentially even devotion. Those understandings built up over decades, sometimes centuries, can often solve really serious problems and even radically new ones. Those understandings are a resource and in some cases, much more than that. They are a gift. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sunstein. That was brilliant. And I know that uh, we're all giving you a virtual round of applause right now. Um, and so we're going to open it up uh, to Q&A. Everyone can, there's a Q&A box uh, underneath uh, the visual of Professor Sunstein, where you could all uh, type your questions in and I will read them out for you. Uh, as the host of this event, I'll take advantage to ask the very first question. Uh, Professor Sunstein, in 2001, you wrote an article arguing that AI, you know, in terms of the ability of AI, it was really just all it could provide was research assistance, I think you called it. Uh, and so and the argument you were making at that time was this was not a technology that was capable of reasoning by analogy. H how have your views changed on the capability of AI, you know, 20 plus years later? Great, thank you. In 2001, I thought a thousand and one things I no longer think now. But what you point to is something I continue to think, though maybe later in 2024, I won't think it. So what I urged was that for legal problems, AI can't resolve the question of what's analogous to what, because what's analogous to what depends on a moral conclusion. And AI can give us candidate solutions, but it can't make up our minds for us. So if we're asked whether a ban on, let's say, polygamous marriages is analogous to a ban on same-sex marriages, or whether uh, breaking a contract because of a strike is analogous to breaking a contract because of a hurricane. AI can say yes or no to that. I even tested your question with, with, with AI in the last week to see if it would change my mind. And AI basically says right now either, uh, you could say it's analogous or not, and here's how you'd make either argument, or it gives you an argument and says, but I'm just AI and you need to ask a lawyer. And the, the, the claim of principle is whether a ban on polygamous marriages is analogous to a ban on same-sex marriages depends on a moral principle. And the same is true for whether uh, allowing people to break a contract because of a strike is analogous to allowing people to break a contract because of a hurricane. 
Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Professor Zunstein. Uh, I'm not seeing... Oh, I've got a question here uh, from Professor Gail Henderson on our faculty. She asks, is there anything about AI, for example, what it is capable of in terms of speed or ability to use social media to disseminate messages much faster than actual humans, which would possibly justify some restrictions that would otherwise be struck down as protected speech? So this is a great question. And uh, I have a colleague, a US constitutional law professor who agrees with what the uh, a potential answer to the question is, and maybe the music of the question, and doesn't agree with me. So you could see that what I was saying was trying to build on existing law to resolve all the AI questions. And you might think that sometimes a, a difference of degree is a difference of kind and you need another analysis. So with respect to falsehoods, uh, I do think the Supreme Court of the United States in a case involving uh, called Alvarez involving someone who claimed falsely to be have won the Medal of Honor. The Supreme Court said, we don't have the Ministry of Truth here. Falsehoods are protected by the First Amendment. I'm not sure that case was right when decided, which was more than a decade ago. And I'm really not sure that case makes any sense in the modern era. So I'm, I'm agreeing with the point that if, but it's a little bit at the intersection of we need an overhaul and we need to rethink application. If And I'm, I'm hopeful, good Burkean that I'm trying to be, that we're trying to rethink application rather than do an overhaul. If falsehoods can be disseminated with incredible speed, it might be that our existing understanding of libel law and a breathing space for falsehoods needs to be rethought. And maybe, and this is a qualification of what I said, so I'm very grateful for the question, we might be really nervous about a chilling effect on reporters. So giving them breathing space to make mistakes, certainly if they're negligent, maybe even if they're worse than negligent, to give breathing space for AI to say falsehoods, let's say about politicians or about ordinary people or about hackers or about writers, why is that a wonderful thing? We don't want that breathing space. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for that thoughtful answer, Professor Sunstein. Uh, the next question I've got up here is from Paul Lomich. Uh, the question is, what approach uh, would we consider to determine appropriate training data sets in the context of regulating communication and AI? Training of the people, the regulators, or training of the uh, people who are producing AI. Training of the people who are producing uh, the data sets, the the data sets that AI relies upon. Okay, so if you look at the regulatory proposals, and sometimes more than that, all over the world, they are. Um, let's call 1.0, are a potpourri of restrictions imposed by reference to imaginable harms. And an alternative approach would be to start by saying, what is unprotected speech in the relevant country? And just saying, hey, I can't do any of those things. And, and then we ask, what have we left out of regulation 
with that framework. So here's an idea for the United States. AI may not engage in speech that's unprotected by the First Amendment. That, that would be a possible foundation and it's really simple. And then the producers of AI have a guidebook, which is the First Amendment. And they need to consult with lawyers, but it, as someone who's taught First Amendment law, it's not all that complicated. So it's not like they're in uh, a Stephen King novel. They're more just trying to figure out if it's libel, so I can't do it. I generated, as you heard, a false advertisement for aspirin. And you know, to ban that might be too aggressive if the production was just for illustration and fun. But if it's being used actually to sell aspirin or some other product, uh, Houston, we have a problem. So to, to train people on what's unprotected is a good start. Now that wouldn't be sufficient because there are catastrophic risks associated with AI that some people are keenly worried about. And those who produce AI uh, shouldn't not, not be worried about catastrophic risks. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Professor Sunstein. The next question I have is from Brandon Lyons. And his question is, despite a widening range of benefits from AI, like personalized education and healthcare, uh, that could not only benefit all people, but disproportionately benefit low-income people. Uh, should we, despite all that, should we slow down advances in AI? Is all of this going too fast? Are the trade-offs worth it or not? It's a great question. And I don't even have uh, a decent answer. Um, the, I'll tell you why I don't. Because if we slow down, we need to know what that meant exactly. And we need to know the costs and benefits of the slowing. And uh, what's on either side of the ledger is very hard to describe um, with, with fullness. Tentatively, I would emphasize the immense pro promise of AI, especially with respect to health and safety. And any slowing down which would prevent preventable deaths would be, you know, a, a, would be a tragedy. So I want more to have a scalpel of restrictions rather than a, a general pause. Now, th this is all tentative and given certain concerns about massive threats the argument for a pause isn't preposterous, but uh, this lawyer at least isn't clear that we have sufficient reason for that. Okay, brilliant, thanks, Chris Sunstein. The next question I have is from Samuel Dahan, who's also a member of our faculty. Uh, the question is, do you think AI requires sector-specific regulation? For example, should the legal industry implement specific regulations for legal AI given that current regulatory frameworks such as the EU AI Act and Canada's AIDA are too generic to address industry-specific issues? Undoubtedly. So if you think about, let's build an area that we know, uh, education. So some of us have children who are under the age of 15. Yours truly has two such. The AI restrictions for them and in secondary schools 
shouldn't be the same as the AI restrictions in hospitals. And for the construction sector, we would want particular, I think, uh, regulations depending on safety and health concerns in the construction sector. So that, that sounds exactly right, that a one size fits all would be too coarse. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, so the next question I've got is from Benjamin Hernandez. And uh, his question is, the content that's created with AI um, is often spread across the internet without you know, being able to attribute, to, uh, attribute it to someone specific. Uh, how do we go about tracking that kind of data? Okay, that's a fantastic question. Um, Okay, suppose that uh, there's some person in Iowa or Ottawa who libels a public figure by saying something credible but false and defamatory. And let's say that someone in New York or Montreal picks up on that statement, finds it credible, and reposts it and let's say it starts to spread, and let's say identifying the initial source is extremely difficult for one or another reason, and even to identify the second source, the person who got the thing going, is really hard for the authorities to do. Then we have a detective work challenge, which is on steroids with respect to AI. And I think what's clear is we can stop the speech, assuming that it's unprotected speech. What's, what's less clear is whom we hold liable for its uh, harmful effects. And there we have conventional standards to use, as in the case of the human beings whom we might not be able to identify, where the initial person is, is clearly liable the second person might be, though there might be a state of mind standard. So it might be that some of the human disseminators, that you can't hold them liable because they were just innocents. That's okay it, if you can stop the speech and maybe demand a correction. It might not be okay enough, which points to the excellent first question, which is given the ability to transmit damaging stuff really fast, it might be we'd have to heighten our standards. Uh, I'll say that I'm less excited about New York Times against Sullivan, which um, many of my best friends are quite unhappy with me for my diminished excitement about New York Times against Sullivan, which protects libelous speech. And the reason I'm less excited about that is in an era where libeling someone is the easiest thing in the world to deter people from negligently, let's say, say saying X is a income tax fraud or is a drug addict, and you can ruin that person's life or at least ruin their year, that to protect that person, that speaker, the negligent year ruiner is, is not clearly a good thing to do. So to allow them to be held liable at least for, let's say, $500, Canadian American dollars. Is that a terrible thing? Or is that producing optimal chill? And that suggests that in the case given where it's hard to identify who's the original source, to identify the people who are the disseminators, 
let's say they're important disseminators and they were um, not trying to hurt anybody, but actually hurting people, to say that they have to stop is fine and maybe to say that they have to pay some sort of uh, amount of civil liability, that's very thinkable. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, so my next question is from um, uh, our Dean, uh, Dean, Dean Flood. Her question is, uh, is whether or not law is able to evolve in a sufficiently timely way to respond to the galloping growth in AI innovation? How can the law evolve appropriately to meet the challenges, uh, whether in private law or in legislation? I'm very optimistic about this. And if you think about how tort law and contract law and free speech law have evolved in with the rise of the internet, they've done pretty well. And this is for the Burkean reason that we have principles that aren't tied to, let's say, ink, and that can be mapped onto pixels. And it, it's probably the case that at least starting with those principles will give us a framework. That's what I tried to do. Accepting the point of the first question, that it might be that things are uh, altering the calculation of costs and benefits so that uh, tweaking might be too small a change, but maybe is indicated. Uh, reforming might be better than tweaking, but uh, in both Canada and the United States, longstanding common law principles, let's say, have uh, served both of us really well. And um, uh, let's be like a great behavioral scientist, Amos Tversky, who said he was an optimist. And the reason he was an optimist was it's rational. If you were a pessimist, you suffer twice. Let's not suffer twice. That's great. Okay. Um, so just a few more. Uh, my next question is from uh, Sherry Metcalf, also a, a member of our faculty. Uh, she's wondering if you might share your views on how the First Amendment applies where private platforms such as Meta or Google are being asked to regulate content or are voluntarily imposing content restrictions in part to prevent spread of misinformation that can be accelerated and targeted via AI. Okay, that's great. So the standard view, and let's stay, start there, is that if uh, Meta or X are regulating speech on their platforms, there's no free speech issue because they're private entities. So if Facebook says, uh, you can't bully people on our platform, that's okay, even if a broad anti-bullying law would be acceptable if it came from uh, the California legislature. Uh, some people think, this is the non-standard view, that Facebook, Meta, uh, X, uh, YouTube should be treated as public forums uh, under First Amendment law, meaning a private entity that's effectively like a state. So they would be subject to the First Amendment. Um, conventional public forum doctrine is not as expansive as it would have to be to justify that conclusion. So on my view, uh, uh, social media platforms can regulate speech without worrying about the First Amendment. 
though it, they ought to worry about freedom. And if they didn't worry about freedom in certain ways, then we might require regulation. And that's the first question asked, the harder question. So if Congress said, with respect to, let's say, uh, Twitter, you can't ban people who are left of center from being on your platform. That would be a very interesting question. Um, it's not clear that would be unacceptable. If the government said to some conservative magazine, you can't stop left-wing authors from being in your magazine, that would clearly be unconstitutional because people are allowed to have right of center or left of center magazines. Given the size and reach of certain social media platforms to require or regulate them in certain ways might be okay. Given a viewpoint neutral and let's say democracy protective justification. I'm being cautious here because I'm just not sure of the answer, um, but we can see why we shouldn't be sure of the answer, I hope. Oh, we absolutely can. Uh, so two more questions. Uh, so the, uh, the first one is from Fatih Inan. Uh, when thinking about the right to free speech when it comes to AI, should we be making a distinction between providing information on the one hand and expressing an opinion on the other? I don't think so. So if someone says climate change is a serious problem and it spells it out, that's information. If someone says we need to uh, ban coal-fired power plants tomorrow, that's an opinion. Analytically, for free speech purposes, it's hard to see why they should be treated differently. Okay, excellent. So the last question is, uh, with more and more use of AI in regulated professions, how might we approach questions of liability in the event of like a malpractice suit? Okay, so suppose a doctor engages in malpractice because AI instructed the relevant behavior. Offhand, that's not a defense. Um, it would be a defense if and only if, let's say, the doctor was not negligent in doing what she did because she relied, relied on AI. And then we'd be applying the usual standards about negligence and whether a doctor is negligent to use AI, rely, rely on AI, would depend on details. If it's you know, if a doctor goes to ChatGPT in its current form to decide how to treat patients, at least my own experience with ChatGPT, love it though I do, is that would be pretty negligent. Just like if a law professor yours truly decided I'm going to teach my administrative law class by tracking what AI tells me about administrative law, I think my students would say, not just you're lazy, but also you're negligent because what you told us was pretty superficial and in some cases not correct. Hey, Professor Sunstein, this has been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed uh, both your talk and uh, your interaction with the questions from the audience. I wanna thank you for speaking, for giving the uh, Marcus Matlong lecture in US law. 
Uh, I want to thank uh, Stephen and Renee again, and I want to thank everybody who came. This has been really great. And now I want to turn it over to Ardeen, uh, Colleen Flood for the final remarks. Thanks. I'll be very brief. Uh, can you hear me okay, Mohammed? Yes. Okay, great. So thank you to everybody for coming out today for the second annual Marcus Madelon U.S. Law Lecture. I'd like to thank in particular Professor Cass Sunstein, of course, for delivering this very important and timely lecture. Um, I think we all understand how critical it is for us to think through how law will and could respond to the rapid emergence of AI and the challenges that uh, jurists and legal scholars face as uh, the technology evolves, it seems, at exponential rates and certainly far more than we've been acclimatized to in the past. I think the uh, from the vantage point of leadership of a law school, this uh, technological revolution in AI is going to fundamentally alter higher education and the practice of law and the research tools we use. And I think it provides the, the pace and scale of change uh, provides uh, challenges to us and how to best support our students to use AI tools for research appropriately and so that they're able to stay current with the changing uh, evolution of tools um, to support them so that they're able to face the ethical challenges that will come from the application of AI, for example, in criminal law and practice or mental health law, and to understand some of how AI will radically shift the context of decision-making, for example, by administrative boards and tribunals, which Professor Sunstein referenced. Um, and uh, for those of you who might be interested in some of the work that Queen's is doing in this space, I want to encourage you to visit our Conflict Analytics Lab website that is run by our colleague Samuel Jahan, who asked a question earlier. In addition to a practicum course called the Legal Tech Clinic, later this year we're also right, running out a, uh, a small micro-credential uh, week-long course on law and AI. So I'm hoping that some of you might be able to join us for that. So I'd just like to thank uh, Muhammad Kimji, Professor Muhammad Kimji, who's Associate Dean of Academic Policy and Interim Dean of Graduate Studies, and the David Orgood Professor in Business Law. Thank you very much, Muhammad, for your facilitation of today's event. And I'd also like to thank our incredible marketing and comms team led by Tim Butler, and in particular, Natalie Morans-Han, who, uh, who organized uh, the event that you're seeing today. And finally, um, my heartfelt thanks to Stephen Marcus, a graduate of our law school from 1977, and Renee Matalon. Uh, it's their support that has made uh, today's incredible lecture possible. Thanks a lot, Stephen, Stephen and Renee, for your dedication to Queen's Law and your support of this lecture. This makes a big difference to us and not just this lecture series, but your other continued support. So thank you again. I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon and uh, a very happy new year and a fabulous start to 2024. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you soon.